Well, I'm not sure there are any words in the Bible more offensive than those. And I, and I don't just mean sort of the bit about, you know, prostitution or homosexuality or even sexual sin more broadly, uh, though we will talk about all of those and we will probably be offended. Um, but even, even more than that, some, in my opinion, some of the most offensive words in all of Scripture that came right there at the end if you were listening for them. When, when Paul said, you are not your own. You don't belong to you anymore. I mean, if there's anything that belongs to me, right? I mean, if there's anything that's mine that I have ownership over, that I have control of and have every say in and every right for, it's this, right? I mean, who are we if if not our own bodies? What do we own if not our own skin, right? And Paul, I mean, he's not just addressing those sinners out there, but we sinners in here. And here's what makes it so difficult. Not only do we feel such ownership of our own bodies, uh, every one of us here is sexually broken. Regrets, disappointments, maybe apathy within our own marriage relationships. It's just not how it should be. Now, if you're new here, God help you if it's your first Sunday. <laughs> I mean, so let, me, let me just say, right, okay, this is not like our favorite topic. You know, it's like, it's the soapbox that every week we try to harp on as much as we can. No, that's not it at all. In fact, we didn't, we didn't choose uh, this topic for this morning. You see, what happened is, let me explain this if you're a guest. We take this book, the Bible, very seriously, and we've been studying 1 Corinthians. This is week 8 out of 25, uh, and we can't just skip over certain sections when they make us uncomfortable, right? Paul goes there, and so, so we're going to go there. We can't just pick and choose. And the reality is, if this is actually God speaking to us, rather than just us sort of talking to ourselves, if that's what this book is, then occasionally God is going to tick us off right? Occasionally, he's going to press us. He's going to offend us. He's going to annoy us. He's going to come into our culture in ways that we don't think he's, he's welcome, right? And so if you're new, bad luck being new. I'm, yeah, I, I get that. Um, but at the same time, I hope if this is your first Sunday here, I hope you're, you're encouraged by a church that is far from perfect, okay? We don't claim that, but at least is trying, trying to take this book seriously, that wants to build our lives uh, on this book. Now, if you're not a Christian, um, we might not see eye to eye on this subject, right? Uh, and there's a good chance that you don't think this ancient book should dictate your sex life. And believe me, I get that. And, and yet at the same time, I, I'm guessing you realize um, that there's something broken with this subject in our world, right? I mean, whether it's our obsession or the abuses that we see or, or, or maybe just even the difference, if you're married, maybe the differences of, of husband and wife in your marriage relationship and some of the challenges that that, that that causes. Or maybe even more broadly, maybe you've just seen some of, the, some of the statistics on how the increased use of pornography in our culture has greatly diminished overall sexual intimacy and pleasure. That's actually had kind of a, an inverse effect. Or, or maybe you've seen some of the, the numbers and the studies that have been done that we now have as a result. We have more abandoned children and exploited women than ever before in history. Or maybe you just even... Look at your own regrets, your own disappointments. If you're, if you're not a Christian, if you don't take this book seriously, then you, you and I, uh, we may not agree on the solution, okay? 
And yet I think we all, if we step back for a moment, we recognize that there's something wrong. There's something wrong with the way that we tend to view this and the way that we live it out. If there's a God who made us, who invented sex, and he, if he has anything to say about it, then we're all ears. I mean, the reality is it's the areas that are most complex, most difficult, the things that we most don't really want to talk about, those are the areas that we most need God to speak to us. And students, some of you here, uh, you might hate your parents right now because they probably knew that this was going to be the topic. And, you know, maybe, maybe you even feel that sort of, you, we're going to talk about what? I, I, I get that. In fact, um, one uh, student, uh, I mentioned this last week, right, at the end of the sermon, that where we were going. And, and one student wrote on the top of his note sheet, here's, here's what he did. Do I have to go to next week? <laughs> Ew. And let me just say, you don't have to be a kid to feel that way here today, okay? All right, this is awkward for all of us. Nobody, nobody feels like, oh, just so re- relaxed and comfortable. In fact, first service, everybody was sat like this the entire time. You know, they, I, I think the idea is if, if you don't move, then maybe I'll forget that you're here or something like that. Um, I can see you regardless. Um, but we all feel that way, right? And if you feel uncomfortable, uh, just imagine for a moment how I, I feel, right? Uh, all of you are looking up here at me, and I have to talk about this. This isn't fun for anyone. But you see, this was a big problem in Corinth, and frankly, it's a big problem for us today. And there in that ancient church, right, 2,000 years ago, there's kind of two polar extremes. Uh, as we've been studying this, we've talked about this. There, there is, on, on the one hand, uh, there are uh, Christians in the church who are saying, you know, sex is dirty, it's icky, we shouldn't even, even married couples, shame on you, should, shouldn't be having sex. Right? And they're using theology to explain why, why that's the case. And then on the other e- extreme, uh, and where we're talking about today, is there's this other group in the church who are saying, you know, actually, sex, it doesn't matter, it's okay. Uh, in fact, they're going out to the, you know, the brothels and, and having sex regularly with prostitutes. And again, they also are using theology to justify it. Well, they're both wrong, if you're, if you're wondering. And we're going to spend three weeks to really try to talk through uh, what, is, what does this mean? What is Paul getting at? And why, why does this matter so much? And so today, we're really going to lay the groundwork for God's design uh, for our, our sexuality. Uh, next week, we're going to focus in on one particular area, not because it's more important uh, than the others, not because it's worse than the others, but because in our culture, it raises the most questions. Uh, Paul mentions homosexuality here, and we need to talk about that. And so we'll, we'll do that next week. And then when we get to chapter 7, Paul addresses those married couples who are dealing with it. And we know, right, if you're married, you know that that doesn't fix it, does it? No, we're still broken. And the way we approach it within our marriages, whether it's apathetic or demanding or withholding or manipulating or, you know, there's plenty of issues, right, that we have as married couples. Well, Paul, Paul speaks into that as well. The reality is God created sex. It was his idea. I think a pretty good one, I might add. And he's got some strong opinions on how it should be handled. But I'm broken, and you're broken. And so let's ask God to help us this morning. Let me pray. God, we we need your help. We need it all the time. We need it with every subject. But God, I I know, I feel it so much when we come to this this issue. I know for many of us, we do as well. Give us a posture of, of repentance and humility. We are all sexually broken, every one of us. Forgive us our mistakes, and forgive us also for the ways we so quickly prefer to focus on the mistakes of others. God, we have really messed up in this area. 
We're mean and we call it righteousness. We're arrogant and we call it wise. We're hateful and afraid and we call it loving. Or we just completely ignore your word and call it loving. Or we've let our, our marriages go and have gotten completely apathetic. God, we are broken in so many ways. Forgive us. Please don't give up on us. And God, help us to feel and to know your forgiveness and to know the freedom from sin that you promise, promise us. And thank you. Thank you for creating us as sexual beings, unique in our own ways, complex and beautiful. So help us to glorify you in our bodies. Amen. If there's anything that belongs to us, it's this. It's, it's, our, it's our bodies. But here, here's our overarching theme for, for this morning, as really, really for these three weeks. Uh, something that we will say over and over again, that the reality is what Paul is saying with each of these subjects is at the end of the day, you just, you don't belong to you anymore. If you're a Christian, you're not yours. You are his, and you belong completely, exclusively, entirely to him. You see, this this subject, it's not simply about our behavior. We can't reduce it to, to such. It's so much more. It's not just about our behavior. It's about who we are, and more importantly, it's about whose we are. For we are his. And so this morning, we're going to try to break that down into three sort of, sort of areas of, of what Paul is getting at in this, in this subject. Uh, first, that we are more than just our desires. Uh, second, that we are more than just ourselves. And third, that we are more than what we see. More than, more than just this here. All right, so giddy up, right? Everybody excited? Ready to go? Oh, God help us, right? All right, so let's, let's look at this. Um, the, the first thing, we, we, are more, we are more than our desires. So we ended, we ended last week, if you were here, in verses 9 through 11, and, and Paul there, we, we read those verses again this morning, and we'll keep reading them these, these coming weeks, uh, but we ended there with this long list of, of sins. There, there's kind of two lists, really. There's, there's greed sins, sins that take, and we talked about that last week, right? The people who are suing and defrauding one another and, and having all kinds of financial issues. We, so we talked about those, and, and the other part of that list are uh, sexual sins. And the first one that Paul mentions in particular is sexual Im- immorality, the sexually immoral, he says, right? In this, this long list of, of sins. It's, it's the Greek word there, porneia, that's sexually Im- immoral or sexual immorality when you, when you read that, maybe is a familiar sounding word to many of us. Uh, it means, essentially, any sex outside of the context of marriage. Okay, and, and uh, Jesus also includes lust, right, in this list. Uh, so any, any sexual expression outside of the context of marriage, that's, that's sort of the, the Bible's definition, is, is sin. Okay, and, and here, this is, this is really important, because I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but what's really important for us to understand here is that you may not agree with what the Bible teaches about sex, okay, and, and we can discuss that and, and all of that, that's, that's fine. You may not agree with what the Bible teaches, uh, but what we cannot do is say that the Bible is somehow unclear on what it teaches about sex, Does that make sense? I mean, especially when you think about broadly sexual sin. I mean, the Bible, all over the place, the clear record of Scripture, okay, in multiple places, and this being one of the most important texts, is that sex is is designed for one man and one woman in the context of monogamous marriage for life, forever. And, And that's it. Any sex outside of that, according to this book, is sin. Now, It'd be very easy for us here. Um, I mean, Paul here, he, verse 12, right? He's, he, he starts to address this. Because the question is, okay, so if we can agree that, yeah, okay, the Bible says it's sin, but why? 
That's what we want to know because, I mean, if there's anything in our culture that when I stand up here and talk, I know right now so many of you think, oh, he's so repressive, so outdated. This is just ancient stuff, right? Why are we still talking about this? I, I get that. And so we can't just stop with this is what the Bible says. We have, to, we have to understand why. Does that make sense? Our culture has pushed us to this place. So why? Why does, why does God say this is important? In verse 12, Paul begins responding to their, their theological reasons for being okay with prostitution. And, and you might notice the quotes here. This is important for us. So it may, if you have your Bible open or even we have it up here, uh, you can see there's different quotes. This is kind of a hard or more difficult thing to understand. Basically what Paul is doing is he's kind of throwing their words back at them. Okay? That's why there, there's quotes. And so uh, essentially many, many commentators would say that what's happening here is, is Paul has given them these phrases that they've twisted and, and thrown back in Paul's face to give them permission to do all these things. And now Paul is saying, no, 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 you're saying this, but this is what this actually means. Does that make sense a little bit? It's, it's important. So it, Paul is writing a letter, but it's, it's a conversation between two parties. Following that? Okay, that's, that's important for, for understanding. The NIV makes it a little bit clear. Let me read beginning in verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial, Paul responds. I have the right to do anything. I mean, Paul, we're, we're under grace, right? You've said that. You told us that, that we can't earn our salvation. Uh, so what's the big deal, right? And so Paul responds, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, Corinthians, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. I mean, essentially, right? You told us, Paul, no more kosher eating. We've thrown that out. Uh, and, and you can't, you're not going to tell us we can't eat, right, anymore. You said that's okay. Um, and just as God gave us our stomachs, he also, you know, gave us some other parts, right, and other desires. And, and, and Paul, we've, we've got needs, right? I mean, that, that's essentially what they're saying. What, it was so remarkable to me this week as I studied this is that once you, once you get down to what they're arguing, man, this just sounds like, a less, like us, doesn't it? I mean, God, if you gave me these desires right? You gave me this appetite. How is this any different than any other appetite that I have? And what's the big deal? Why can't I just satisfy it when I want to? I mean, it sounds unreasonable, cruel even, to suggest that there are certain appetites that we need to exercise self-control over and reserve only for for marriage. Paul, Paul's like, guys, you're missing it. Look Look at what he says in the next verse. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Yeah, but Nathan, that was like back in the Stone Age, wasn't it? I mean, didn't they all think that sex was just sort of dirty back then? And, you know, Paul is just writing to his culture, and they're all, you know, prudes and those, those kinds of things. So Paul doesn't possibly understand what it's like to live in a sexualized culture like, like ours, to have this kind of freedom. He just doesn't, he doesn't get it. That's a common argument, Right? The Bible is just written in such a different place that it couldn't possibly speak into the place in which we live now. But think about what Roman culture was. Not that different. At least not, not in the, this issue, right? I mean, they, they didn't have sexual taboos in any category in that culture. I mean, just even like for a second, just recognize the fact that they in the church, right, publicly are having debates about whether or not they can see prostitutes, Okay? I mean, talk about a sexually liberal, liberalized culture, right, that Paul is writing to here. I mean, at one point, Corinth was even famous for their prostitutes. Like, they were known for it across the Roman world. It was like Vegas or Thailand, okay? That's the, that's the place where Paul is writing to. 
Paul knew what it was exactly what it was like to live in a sexualized culture, a place of sexual freedom. We call him regressive, right? We call the Bible regressive, but if anything, if anything, the sexual liberation of today is simply a move back 2,000 years to the primitive way of the Roman culture that we abandoned a long time ago. I mean, it's sort of like, like reading Game of Thrones and thinking, hey, that's a really good idea. We should live more like that, right? It's, it's, it's barbaric. Like the Corinthians, like the Corinthians, we've made sex both everything and nothing. Uh, on the one hand, it's, it's what we live for. It's our identity, right? <laughs> on the other hand, it's nothing. It's meaningless. And so like the Corinthians, we've allowed our physical appetites to control us. But we know, don't we, that it's more than just another appetite. Don't we? Because we have other physical appetites, right? Food, right, is a big one. Sleep, warmth, you know, comfort, those kinds of things. We have all kinds of, of physical appetites. And so if the argument is, well, we have those, we can't, we're not going to stop eating, right, or, or wanting warm beds to sleep in. Uh, so why, why this one? Isn't sex just the same? Well, turn on the radio. Top 40. How many ballads do you hear about food? And I love me some food. I mean, don't get me wrong, right? I, lo- I love food. Or how, how, many, how many songs about sleep, about warmth? How many songs about sex? Or even, even just think for a moment, not just there, but what if, this would be a fun experiment, what, what if we put all of our internet histories for the last week up on the screen for us to look at? Anybody here concerned that there'd be some, you know, pictures of risque cheeseburgers that we'd show? scantily clad pizzas, or, or, or do any of us here secretly and, and obsessively look at pictures of chocolate cake? <laughs> Probably not, right? And if we did, we would know that that's, there's, something, there's something wrong there. We, we, know, we know that this appetite is different. I mean, C.S. Lewis, for example, picks up on this metaphor. He, he talks about what if you were to, you know, discover a culture, an ancient civilization or something, people that you couldn't actually see or talk to, um, but you, you discovered them and, and you came across all this very in- interesting information and they were, they were a culture that was obsessed with pictures of food. And, and they, they would build their lives on the next, the next meal, right? The next time they could eat, they, w- they would structure everything according to this, this, this satisfaction of this, of this one particular desire. He says, what, would you, what kind of assumptions would you draw about that culture? Would you think they were starving or satisfied? Starving, right? We think that our sexual libera- liberation has led to satisfaction, and the reality is we are hungrier than we've ever been. I mean, I, s- I still remember my first exposure to pornography. I was young, super young. I was exploring out, I lived out in the country, um, so I was exploring with a buddy um, outside and all that. And we found a kind of an abandoned barn and just thought it'd be fun to wander in. And inside, you know, littered with pictures, right? Um, at least 25 years ago, I, I can still see those images. And they still continue to try and pull me in. You can't tell me this is just another desire. But here, here I think is part of our struggle with this issue. At least, at least part of my struggle. Um, when's the last time, I've got to ask myself this, when's the last time I've denied myself anything? I mean, anything at all, right? 
Because this isn't just a sex problem. We, we are more than our desires, but we almost never deny ourselves anything. Is it any wonder we struggle so much? And so, for example, maybe, maybe sex isn't your primary issue, but you can't stop eating or drinking or, or smoking or, or sitting on the couch, or maybe even on the other side, you can't stop working out or, or obsessing in, in front of the mirror. That, that body of yours, if you're a Christian, it's, it's not yours. It doesn't, it doesn't belong to you. And I, and I realize if you do struggle in this area, and many of us, right, many of us do, let's, let's be honest, many of us struggle in this area. And I know when you're in those moments, it feels so impossible to stop, doesn't it? We'll start, start here. And I mean this literally. Uh, it sounds ridiculous, but I, I, I absolutely mean this. It's a simple place to stop, start if you want to start fighting sexual sin in your life is stop scratching every itch. Literally. You don't, you don't have to scratch every itch. Your body's not the boss of you. I mean, this is why, for example, um, fasting is such a helpful tool in fighting against sexual sin. Skipping a meal, skipping a day of meals. Because if you, can, if you can control your body there, your body actually does need food to live. If you can give up that, then you can give up just about anything. It won't, it won't kill you to deny yourself. Okay, well, maybe we're more than our appetites. Maybe, maybe we do deep down know that, but yet at the same time, I mean, let's be honest, sex is a private matter, right? I mean, why, why are we even talking about this in church, for crying out loud? This is awkward enough. Make it stop, right? I mean, what two consenting adults do in their own privacy, why do we even care? But wait, Paul continues. He goes on. Uh, we are more than just ourselves. We're more than just ourselves. But before we look at Paul, though, uh, look at Wendell Berry. If you don't know who he is, he's a a popular author, poet. He's not somebody who views sex from a a biblical perspective, okay? In fact, he would have a lot of disagreements with the way the Bible views sex. But yet he writes, I love this, he says, Sex, like any other necessary, precious, and volatile power that is commonly held, it is everyone's business. And here's why I think that's true. What we do in private shapes who we are in public. No matter what it is. I mean, we're always being formed, right? We're always becoming somebody. What you do in private absolutely shapes who we are in public. According, for, for example, according to the book Premarital Sex in America, it's written by a couple of sociologists, published uh, by Oxford University Press. Okay, so again, not, not a Christian institution, right? Um, seeing things from a very different perspective. Uh, but they make a very compelling case that if you objectify women in your relationships, for example, um, or... or in front of the computer screen. You are inevitably training yourself to objectify them everywhere. I mean, you just can't shut it off. And so if you objectify them there, whether, again, a relationship or a computer screen, if you objectify them there, you'll do it in your home and your school and your work and in your church and your community group. You, You just can't turn it off. And what's really sad is, women, you know that, don't you? I mean, where do you think your obsession with body image comes from? When do you think that started? I mean, the way you practically starve yourself, some, some of you, the way you obsess about working out the clothes that you wear and the pressures you feel surrounding sex, all that is the hidden cost of sexual freedom. We, we men, we have turned you into the 
just simple objects for our exploitation. We have defined what beauty is. I'm sorry. I mean that. I hope that doesn't sound trite at all. And so, so many of you now, you feel the burden of that every time you look in the mirror. And we, we call ourselves free, right? And this, in turn, has, has led to even more children being abandoned or aborted and, and even more women being exploited. I mean, it may not be prostitution like Paul's day, but we've got to be honest here. We've got to be honest with ourselves. Who has the most to lose from sexual freedom? I guarantee it's not men. It's women and children, isn't it? I mean, are you okay with that? Are we okay with that? There's a heavy cost with freedom. And, and maybe on the, on the other end of that, you say, well, we, we love each other. That's not us, right? We're not exploiting one another. And, and, I, and I get that. I, I realize that. that I mean, that's an important thing. And yet the reality is you don't belong to you anymore. And this, this same book, again, not written from a Christian perspective at all, uh, talks about how even that argument becomes so selfish so quickly. How we turn sex into a, in a matter of, of taking rather than allowing it to be the self-giving expression that it was always designed to be. In fact, there was an article um, this past uh, week, uh, it was on Valentine's Day in the New York Times. Again, not, not a Christian institution, right? Um, and it was really a reflection on, I know you can't really read it from there, I'll read part of it, but it really a reflection on Fifty Shades of Grey, right? But it kind of turned into this discussion on, on sexual freedom as a whole in our culture. Uh, and here's, here's what it says. It says, viewed from one angle, the sexual revolution looks obviously egalitarian, like equal for all, Right? It's about extending to everyone the liberties, the freedom to be promiscuous, to pursue sexual fulfillment without guilt. But viewed from another angle, that same revolution looks more like a permission slip for the strong and privileged to prey upon the weak and easily exploited. It's the revolution that has been better for fraternity brothers than their female guests, better for the rich than the poor, better for the beautiful than the plain, better for liberated adults than fatherless children and so on down a long, depressing list. That's what our culture says about this issue in response. What does, what does Paul have to say? Let's, let's look at v- verse 15 here. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Okay, so most of us probably aren't daily affected by, by prostitution, right? I mean, don't be, don't be naive. The first divorce that I had to walk through with congregation members involved solicitation. So it's, we're certainly not immune to that, are we? Don't be, don't be naive. And yet even what Paul is, is talking about here behind the scenes is so important to understanding why this subject matters it's not merely the prostitution that's going on. It's that, you see how Paul connects our, our sexuality to this, this quote in Genesis. He's quoting Genesis, right? And, and God's design there in the garden before everything fell apart. And so the quote, the two become one flesh, right? Um, that, that comes from this, really the first wedding ceremony, right? God himself is officiating. It's, it's just before the first sexual experience where God says the two shall become one flesh. And so here's Paul's argument. If you are a Christian, you are one with Christ. You, you are him, and he is you. You can't separate that. And if you sleep with someone, you become one with that person. And so you join Christ with that person. 
And that has to be more than merely a physical act, right? Because our, our, our union with Christ has to be more than just physical, right? We're not physically one with him. And so there's something more going on here that Paul is talking about, something deeper in our, our sexuality. That sex is, is never just about you. It's never even just about the person that you're with. What Genesis is saying, what Paul is echoing, is that sex is always a uniting act. Always a uniting act. And really, if you think about it, maybe, I think if you think about it, that's the real beauty of sex, isn't it? I mean, not just the pleasure. And, and listen, I mean, I, I'm a normal guy, okay? Believe it or not, okay? I, I, I am. But that's not, the, that's not the real beauty of sex. The real beauty is that it reforges, forges and reforges a bond of intimacy that our marriages are absolutely desperate for, that I, as a relational being created in the image of a relational God, that I am desperate for. This is is why a few verses later in chapter 7, and we're going to get there, Paul talks about the importance of sex within marriage, that even there, like if you're you're ignoring that part of your relationship, you're married and you've, you've grown apathetic and you've let it fall to the wayside, that also is sin, and Paul is going to address that. Because it's a uniting act. We need that. So so Tim and Kathy Keller in their book on marriage, they write, Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful, God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. Deep down, I think this is what we want. Again, I think, we, I think we recognize this, even, even as a culture. And if you don't, don't believe me, again, go back to the radio, turn on, turn on the music. How many songs do we continue to hear that celebrate the joys of committed monogamy? You may, you may not recognize it as that, but phrases like, I'll love you forever. I'll die in your arms. Won't you stay with me? Right? We hear these things all, all the time in our music. We can't separate, or even, even the books we read, the movies we watch, the television shows uh, that surround us. One, one example, I think it's probably my favorite example of this, is uh, How I Met Your Mother. I don't know if you've seen the show, right? It was on for, I don't know, 10 seasons or something ridiculous like that. Um, but if, if you don't know the show, uh, essentially it's 208 episodes of, you know, pretty much, you know, lots of sexual freedom. Let's, let's just call it that, right? Uh, in each episode. And yet the entire premise of the show is that one day, Ted, the main character, is going to meet his kid's mother. And all all of it will be over. All all of those pointless conquests will be done and that he will meet his soulmate. I mean, that's the explicit goal of the entire show. And so here's what's happening. As a society, we continue to cling to the biblical value of sex. We want the romance, the intimacy, the power, all of which comes out of a biblical worldview. We don't get romance from evolutionary biology. We don't get it from viewing sex as just another appetite or a matter for private consumption. Romantic love comes out of this worldview and nowhere else. And we want that. We want the value that the Bible places on sex. We just refuse its ethic. So when's the last time uh, in, in your own relationships, maybe not even just sexually, but uh, because we're more than just ourselves, when, when's the last time uh, you haven't made it all just about you? About, about your needs, your desires, your wants? I mean, certainly this happens married or single, doesn't it? From withholding or to demanding to p- apathy to pornography to living together. 
I mean, if this is the real power of sex, which the Bible talks about and our culture can't help singing about, if it unites us like nothing else in the world, that means it actually harms us when we use it for anything else. And let me give, let me give two examples for that in particular. And I'm guessing some of us have experienced both of these, but let me, two, two examples of the way sex can be so harmful. For example, if you're involved with someone physically, um, without yet being ready to commit to them in other ways. Sex is designed to create an emotional bond uh, that makes you want to start committing to them in all those other ways. Financially, relationally, socially, all those kinds of things. It, it creates that inevitably. Uh, and sometimes, oftentimes, right, before, before you're actually ready to do that, doesn't it? And so some of you, even, even your own stories, right, your own marriages, uh, there's a, maybe, maybe you got attached too early, Right? I mean, some of you did, right? You got attached before you were ready, and then you got married, and now you're continuing to feel some of those challenges along the way, or maybe that, that marriage just didn't, didn't last altogether. We feel that. Or worse, the other, the other angle of this, of how it can hurt us, is that we'll so abuse sex's power through multiple partners or on the internet or living together that we'll actually begin to rob sex of its uniting power. Because the reality is you might sit here and think, I don't, I don't feel attached to all those women in the past. Right? I, don't, I don't feel that. But that also means that you will feel less attached when you are supposed to, to your spouse. You've robbed it of its uniting power in your marriage, and your marriage, my marriage, needs it. And it's so easy, I know, that for us just to say, well, we're in a committed relationship. We love each other. It's not, it's not like that. But that's the point. No, you're not. Until you're married, there is always an out always a doubt, and you're training yourself to view sex from a very narrow perspective where it's, it just becomes more and more about ourselves, and we lose sight of the bigger picture of what God could possibly do in your relationship. Another exa- example of this was an article a while back in the New York Times. It's a couple of years ago. It was the downside of cohabitating before marriage, and I, I, won't, I won't get into it much, but uh, I mean, essentially every study indicates um, that couples who live together before m- marriage are much more likely to get divorced. That, that it's not a good test run. Uh, in fact, it does the opposite because there you continue to train yourself that you could have your cake without having to eat it too, right? Um, that you don't have to, to, um, to commit in every way and it makes it very hard to commit later. One woman uh, that they interviewed actually said, it was a very, very, very sad quote, she said, I felt like I was on this multi-year, never-ending audition to be his wife. And we call it freedom. Married or single, every one of us is in danger of robbing sex of its power. And the Bible's not anti-sex. I mean, don't think that for a minute. The reality is we always protect the things we value the most, don't we? We always do. It's the things that we sort of kick to the, to the curb. Those are the things that don't matter. Those are the things we don't care about. And the reality is we, just, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. Because third, and I don't want us to miss this. I know some of you are like, seriously, um, Sorry. Okay, it's a big subject. We've got to keep going here. But there's one more thing, and I don't want us to miss this. It's so important. Uh, the third reason that Paul um, says this, that God speaks out against this, is because we are more than what we see. We're more, we're more than just this. And this is really important because, I, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the Bible actually has the most uh, positive perspective on the human body and the physical world than any other worldview or religion. I mean, it really does, right? Uh, we sometimes think that it doesn't really matter, but, I mean, Paul gets, gets out of that here. Even in verse 14, for example, if we step back just a minute, uh, Paul says there that our bodies will be raised like Christ. That means if you're a Christian, you and I, we, we will be physical. 
right? There's, there's not like a, a time, you know, later on that the grand re- eternity or whatever is us being sort of spiritual ghosts floating around on, on, on clouds with harps and, and wings. That's, that's not the picture that the Bible paints. Just as Jesus was raised physically in his body, you and I, our bodies, this thing, though renewed, different in ways I can't even begin to understand, this body comes with that we will be raised new and fresh and whole again, that our, our bodies matter. And it's not just that. Look at verse 18 then. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I mean, on the one hand, sexual sin is about as normal as it gets, right? I mean, that's even, even the fact that it's in that list earlier, 9 through 11, with things like drunkenness and gossip and greed. and those, it's, it's a normal thing, and yet Paul says there's something unique about it, right? Because our bodies are more than just atoms. They're more than just what we see. If you're a Christian, they're temples. That means in all the mystical ways that it could be true that, that God lives here. And that everything about us, everything about our lives, everything about our physicality, and everything is, is spiritual. It's sacred. It matters. Verse 19. He said, do you, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Listen, sex, it's not everything. I mean, even good sex, Okay. Even, even in the right context, right, of, of marriage. I mean, really, honestly, if you hear this sermon and think, well, the goal is to have the best sex possible, and if that's marriage, then I've got to do this and this and this, and I'll, I'll make it happen. That's not the goal. You've still missed it. Sex is not God. I mean, G.K. Chesterton, I love this. Uh, in the last century, uh, he said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. We're always looking for something more, something that will actually satisfy, something that will actually reach deep within us and give us the meaning and significance that we need. What is everything is that we have been purchased by the God who made us, who died for our sins, who chases after us out of love to, to marry us, to love us, and to, to know us, that our bodies are now sacred space before him, for he lives within us, and our identity is his. Is sex really more important than that? I mean, that's, that's why it shouldn't surprise us when God calls some people to live a celibate life for all of their lives to give up sex. That shouldn't surprise us. It's because it's not everything. I mean, Jesus, Jesus died a virgin, you think he's up in heaven right now? I think, oh, my one regret, you know? No, of course not. It's ridiculous. We know better than that. We know it's not everything. We don't need sex. What we need is for someone to rescue us. What we need is for someone to satisfy us like nothing else possibly can. We, we, to be our identity, our hope, our forgiveness, our passion, our love, our life now and our life forever. That is what we need. And unless, and unless you see Jesus as better and actually believe that he's better, but of course, everything I just said, right? Everything the Bible says, you're just going to laugh at it later, right? It's all right, I can take it. It's okay. Do you want Jesus or do you want sex on, on your terms? And that, that's a daily question I have to wrestle with. My desires are broken, people. I feel these issues and these temptations just like anybody else, and I wrestle with them. So, so one more question, a question I've been asking myself this week. This is, this is a tough one here. It's tough for me anyway. When's the last time you've run towards holiness? Not just run from sexual sin, 
I mean, Paul certainly says to flee, okay, and I don't, I don't want to make light of that, but we have to run towards something. And, and that's what's on display here, that we run towards holiness, not towards sex or pleasure or our own self-expression. We run towards Jesus. I mean, look how Paul ends. He says, so glorify God in your body. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what he's getting at. I mean, frankly, if you hear nothing else, that's probably enough, isn't it? Glorify him with this. Instead of asking, how far can I go? What can I get away with? Is this really porn? Can I read Fifty Shades of Grey? Can I have dessert with every meal? Right? Instead of asking these questions, right, which are always just trying to see what we can get away with, right? We're always looking for the, like, the lowest bar to be able to crawl under, right? The question that we need to be asking, if we've met this guy named Jesus, if he has rescued us, the question we ask is, how can I glorify God with this? With this, this suit of skin that I am wearing, this, this thing that he has given me to live and to, to know him and to be able to encounter him. What, what's going to glorify him? Martin Luther, the reformer, said uh, about 500 years ago, he said, you can't stop birds from flying above your head but you can stop them from making nests in your hair. Temptation surrounds us. You're not going to escape it. But are we fleeing it? And this, this community takes confession, takes community, takes accountability, takes a resolve to let God shape our imagination about this subject rather than the things that we watch or this, the stuff that we read or the music we listen to. It takes a refusal to believe that sex is everything or even the most important thing, or even that it's just nothing and inconsequential in your marriage. We have to reject all of that. It forces us to choose him as our identity and nothing else because I don't belong to me anymore. I'm not mine. God purchased me with his blood, and yes, believe me, I have regrets and I have disappointments. I have things in my life I wish I could change and things that I wish I had done differently. And I think the most difficult thing in some ways about talking about a subject like this is that we all, every one of us here, we come with all these, all these things, don't we? They're all different. Every story is different. And yet you can't talk about a subject like this without feeling at least some, something, something negative, right? Whether it's regret or shame or disappointment or just plain apathy in your marriage. None of us has done this right. Nobody here. And yet not one of these things defines us. Because Paul, Paul already told them, right? It's where we started this morning. It's where we ended last week. It's words we will continue to read throughout these weeks. Paul said so clearly in verse 11, and such were some of you. It's who you were. It's who I was. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. People, there is no sin too terrible. No shame too great that Jesus hasn't already paid for it with his blood. And because of grace, every day is a new day. Every day is a fresh start, a fresh opportunity to say, yes, God, with this area of my life, it is yours fully and completely. Every, every day we have a chance to do that. And for some of you, maybe that means you need to, you need to ask somebody for forgiveness in your life. Or maybe confront them. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a matter of, of just having a, a meaningful conversation with a significant other or, or maybe with your kids, right, as you think about this in, in their own life. But you can make, I can make changes today. We can decide now in the presence of God that we are going to glorify God with our bodies. We can do that because we don't belong to ourselves anymore. He can redeem every mistake. He can make us whole. 
and he can satisfy. And aren't you glad that you don't belong to you anymore? Well, I'm done. Good grief. I'm ready to sing. I'm ready to move on, right, to get this behind us. Of course, I got another service. I might sneak out with you later. Um, I mean, I want to I move on. I want to run from this, and yet I, I think we just need to pause for a minute. Uh, we're going to get there, and we're going to sing songs of, of God's great redemption and our need for him in our lives. But first, why don't we just sit uh, in quiet reflection? Uh, maybe, maybe you've heard God say something to you this morning um, from his word, right? Not, not, because, not because of anything I've said, but because that's, God, that's how he does it, right? Through his word and through his Holy Spirit at work within us. Maybe there's something you need to confess or repent. Begin your work with him uh, and then move out into the relationships in your life. We put a prayer on the screen um, if that helps you. Um, but let's, uh, let's do that quietly now together. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that your forgiveness is free and abundant. God, I'm so thankful that you are not just some crotchety old killjoy or some prude of a grandma wagging your finger at us, but that you long to protect us. You long to give us joy and satisfaction in you and in all of these things. And God, I thank you that you forgive us when we fail. I'm so glad that together we can say that we belong to you. No, no one else, nothing else. And so be glorified in our bodies, we pray. Amen.